Thank you for tuning into this episode of Think Back, Insights into Axial Spondyloarthritis. This podcast is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Medical Affairs. The speakers have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Welcome to this episode of the Think Back Insights into Axial Spondyloarthritis podcast. I'm uh, Dr. Ethan Craig, and I'm a rheumatologist with expertise in spondyloarthritis. I've published on topics discussed in this podcast. And I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, an academic family physician who sees patients and teaches residents and medical students in the Family Medicine Residency Program at Abington Jefferson Health in Abington, PA. On today's episode of the Think Back podcast, our topic of discussion is when pain hides an inflammatory disease. We'll briefly introduce spondyloarthritis and its subtypes, including axial spondylitis or AXPA. And we'll also touch upon the underlying biological processes in these diseases and diagnostic challenges like delays in diagnosis and the process of referral. Let's start with the definition of spondyloarthritis for our listeners. Spondyloarthritis or SPA is really a spectrum of diseases, although there are some common clinical and genetic features. SPA can include clinical features like inflammatory back pain, asymmetric peripheral arthritis, inflammation where the tendons attach to the bone, and extraarticular involvement. Extraarticular involvement can include dactylitis or sausage fingers, uveitis, psoriasis, and even inflammatory bowel disease. Now that we've discussed the spectrum of SPA, Dr. Craig, can you describe the subtypes of SPA for our listeners? Generally, spondyloarthritis has been classified as either axial or peripheral. So axial spondyloarthritis, or AXPA, which I'll call it, can be further distinguished as non-radiographic AXPA or radiographic AXPA, which is also basically ankylosing spondylitis. The two are used pretty interchangeably. The radiographic subtype is overall more common. So peripheral SPA can include patients with psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease-related SPA, and reactive arthritis, among others. Yeah, so axial SPA and peripheral SPA have different clinical presentations, while axial SPA impacts the spine, chest, pelvis, and sacroiliac joints. Peripheral SPA affects other joints, elbows, hands, knees, heels, feet. Dr. Craig, what are the underlying biologic mechanisms that are active in SPA? Well, briefly, the biological mechanisms that give rise to the clinical presentation of SPA are are pretty complex um, and past the scope of the podcast here. But overall, inflammatory activity by adaptive and immune cells produce clinical features like the enthesitis, synovitis, osteoproliferation, and bone erosions, cartilage destruction, and cutaneous lesions as well. So this immune response is characterized really by the production of various cytokines, including TNF-alpha, as well as some particular interleukins that make us think about spondyloarthropathies, including IL-17, IL-22, and IL-23. There's also definitely a role of genetic predisposition. Because what we really need to know in primary care is the clinical course of XPA. Can you go over that for us? Well, as with everything in rheumatology, overall, the course of XPA is pretty hard to predict. So as I mentioned, there are people who are genetically predisposed to this disease, but having a genetic predisposition doesn't guarantee they're going to develop XPA. So there are some individuals that are genetically predisposed and develop subclinical disease. Some patients that develop inflammatory back pain, 
And some of those that with inflammatory back pain will go on to develop non-radiographic AXPA. And in some cases, these patients may experience spontaneous remission, while others may have an inactive course of the disease. Now, of the individuals that have non-radiographic AXPA, only about 12% will actually progress to develop ankylosing spondylitis or radiographic AXPA over the course of two years. But others may continue to have non-radiographic AXPA, and actually the burden of the disease is pretty uh, similar between radiographic and non-radiographic AXPA, regardless of X-ray changes. So AXPA is not necessarily a progressive disease. Um, some patients have long-term complications, while others have relatively low symptoms for a prolonged chronic course of illness. As ankylosing spondylitis, the radiographic, graphically evident form of AXPA progresses. Patients can develop syndesmophytes or bony growths that bridge across the vertebrae that may be seen on X-ray. And inflammatory activity and bone erosions typically occur early before that kind of new bone growth and syndesmophytes are formed. So really there can be both radiographic and non-radiographic stages of disease. It has clinical features that include back pain throughout the disease course. You know, the, the primary challenge for us in primary care really is trying to make the diagnosis and avoid a long diagnostic delay. The average length of delay of diagnosis ranges from anywhere from six to eight years. And since we're the people that see most of the back pain out there, any suggestions that you have to help us make that diagnosis quicker? Well, it's as you said, uh, the primary challenge is is identifying those cases that need to be seen by a rheumatologist to reduce the, uh, the diagnostic delay. That delay is much shorter once they get into the door of a rheumatology office. So it's important to keep in mind that patients usually experience back pain for a long time before they even consult a physician. And that period can last years. So really the challenge for primary practitioners is to figure out which patients uh, would benefit from a referral to a rheumatologist. And that's right. And is there any um, criteria that is helpful for us to use in thinking through which are the people that should move on to see you? There are quite a few criteria that have been proposed and a lot of referral strategies out there, but the one I recommend is the Berlin referral strategy. Um, and that's uh, designed to pick out patients with AXPA that should be referred to a rheumatologist for further evaluation. So if they have all the following, so chronic low back pain for more than three months, an age of onset of back pain of 45 years or less, and one of the following three features of sacroiliitis on X-ray or MRI, a positive HLA-B27 or inflammatory back pain. So if they have those features, those patients should be seen by a rheumatologist. And there are other criteria that are available out there. These are discussed in further detail in another episode of the Think Back podcast series. That's so helpful. And inflammatory back pain is a critically important aspect there that you pointed out. And that includes things like morning stiffness for more than 30 minutes, pain at night or in the early morning, or pain that improves with exercise, which is very different than mechanical back pain that often gets worse with uh, exercise. In, in many ways, mechanical back pain and inflammatory back pain are mirror images. 
Uh, are there any mnemonics that would be helpful for us to use when we uh, think about trying to separate out uh, what is inflammatory back pain? I'm personally partial to the eye pain mnemonic, uh, which is a pretty nice way to remember this. Uh, so I stands for insidious onset and the fact that patients kind of have this come on over a long period of time. P is for pain that occurs at night and improves when getting up, typically in early morning hours or late night. A is for age of onset, less than 40 years of age. I is for improvement with exercise. And N is for no improvement with rest. That's really helpful. So let's go on now to, so we talked about how to clinically distinguish things. How about lab testing? And then we'll talk about x-rays, but let's start with the uh, HLA-B27. Where does that fit in? Well, the HLA-B27 is a complex one. Uh, so the use of HLA-B27 is really going to vary a little from context to context and population to population. So the vast majority of patients in the U.S. with HLA-B27 do not have spondyloarthritis. And that's really important to emphasize. And so given how common back pain is in the U.S., even the majority of people with back pain and HLA-B27 positivity also don't have spondyloarthritis. So HLA-B27 is probably best used uh, as an algorithmic tool to really determine the need for referral. So really in your hands. Uh, so for primary care, it can be used to help triage patients, as we kind of talked about above, that had low back pain uh, and uh, suspicious features. And if they're HLA-B27 positive, should be referred through to a rheumatologist. It's also helpful as a rule out. So most people, the vast majority of patients with ankylosing spondylitis, over 80% have an HLA-B27. So if they are HLA-B27 negative, it's very unlikely that they have axial spondyloarthritis. Now it's important that race impacts this. So in the United States in particular, uh, black patients with ankylosing spondylitis are far less likely to have an HLA-B27. Only about 50% of those patients have a positive HLA-B27. So in that particular population, the ability to use it to rule out is quite different. Where does imaging fit in? Yeah, and someone with suspicion for spondyloarthritis really start with an x-ray of the SI joint. Ideally, dedicated views of the SI joint as opposed to the lumbar spine, which misses the SI joint uh, in a lot of cases. So as the name implies, non-radiographic AXPA may not have radiographic features, specifically changes that you see on an x-ray. So when radiography results are normal or ambiguous, especially for lower grades of involvement, and you're still concerned, an MRI of the SI joint is really the next thing to do. So the MRI of the sacroiliac joint can detect acute changes in the SI joint that we don't see in x-ray, like active inflammation, bone marrow edema, and it's also much more sensitive for identifying small changes like erosions and fatty metaplasia that also you don't see on x-ray. The sensitivity of the modality is about 80%, so it's pretty darn good at picking these patients out. MRI of the spine may show syndesmophytes, it may show shiny corners, um, or it may show bone marrow edema or in, in, inflammation at tendon insertion sites or enthesitis along the spinal ligaments. That's helpful. You know, another area for di of diagnostic pitfall is that ankylosing spondylitis has for a long time been viewed as a male disease. And because of this, uh, there's often a longer diagnostic delay in women. So if we're interested in finding out more about the sex differences in diagnosis and presentation, just tune in to another episode of Think Back in the podcast series that discusses those differences in more detail. Dr. Craig, to sum up, what's the main thing that you hope our listeners 
take away from this episode? Well, overall, my biggest takeaway for a primary care audience is that you play a key role in the early identification of spondyloarthritis. So to do this, be mindful that inflammatory and not mechanical back pain is really the key symptom that should lead to referral to rheumatology. And both the Berlin strategy and that eye pain mnemonic can really help you to pick out those patients that need further attention, further testing, and referral through. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Think Back Insights into Axial Spondyloarthritis podcast. Other episodes of Think Back feature further information about AxSpot, symptoms, referral tools, sex differences, and more details about distinguishing inflammatory back pain from mechanical back pain. Again, thanks for listening.